Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Hello, today's podcast is a special one. I am opening the door to descend the stone steps at Kensington Gore, the unseen and unknown staircase down to a secure part of the building. It's a floor with restricted access, it's not open to the public, and isn't a place I know well. I've only been here a handful of times, and this time I'm here to find our map curator, Dr. Catherine Parker, who I hope will help me get through this first security door. Here we go. Hi Katie. Thanks for having me in. Are you ready? Great, okay, let's go to the foil reading room then. Okay, so now I'm in the foil reading room, which is a public reading room, open Monday to Friday. Uh, And I'm here with Katie, who is the Cartographic Collections Manager at the Royal Geographical Society. She previously worked as the Research Officer at Barry Lawrence Rudiman Antique Maps and taught at Queen Mary University of London. Today, in addition to preserving and promoting our map collection, she's also a part-time lecturer in the History of Architecture at NYU London. Katie has a wealth of knowledge about maps, as you would expect, and we are now in the foil reading room to discuss the borders, boundaries and maps of Ukraine from the 1800s through to present day. Katie, hello. Hello, thanks for coming down. Um, I'm very excited about this. We're going to make a start now and we're going to work our way through a selection of maps, about eight or ten in total. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The first question is, why is this a good idea, looking at maps to learn about Ukraine? Why is this space so interesting? Sure. So Ukraine is located um, at one of the many crossroads of Europe. We could say this about a lot of European countries, really. But that puts it at the center of many historical events, including previous and present conflicts. So it's the second largest country in Europe. It's about 1,300 kilometers wide and 900 kilometers north and south. So you can understand why a lot of things happen in such a large space. And politically, it's been part of many empires and federations and states, meaning that what was included in Ukraine at any one time is actually a historical question that maps can help us to trace. So they show various understandings of Ukrainian culture, nationhood, and political belonging over time. So by looking at maps in this collection, which are from the RGS um, that touch on Ukraine, we're also actually learning about the collecting priorities of the society. So what interested fellows at a certain period of time and also how they operated in conjunction with various government offices. So we can kind of learn about a lot of these things just by starting to look at these maps and then expanding out from that. On the basis that maps are a a social construct. Indeed. Uh, that is what many, many of the map historians would say they are. So they're definitely a social construction um, that are an amalgam of what people put into them, but also what readers are getting out of them. The RGS has over a million sheets of maps in its collections, one of the largest private map collections in the world. Why are maps so important to the RGS and what can they tell us about the past? 
So the RGS uh, has made map collecting a real priority from its earliest days. The, when the early fellows founded it, they wanted to build a consulting collection so that the fellows, who included explorers, government officials and politicians, businessmen, as well as scholars, so all of these at that point men, could access the latest information about the most places possible all in one location. So the one-stop shop for learning about the world. Over time, this has meant that the RGS has accrued many, many maps and atlases as more information was published and more and more expeditions were brought back to their materials as fellows also left their collections to the society. So there's a lot of ways that these things come into the collection. So this also made the RGS a repository as well as a consultation collection, meaning it has a lot of historical depth in addition to its geographic breadth. So maps, as I was saying, are great sources for learning about the past, but I do want to say that we have to approach them very, very carefully. They're not transparent windows into history. Nothing is. Rather, maps are um, offering a very specific perspective on past events based on the social, cultural, and political context of their makers, but also their users. So they contain biases and very specific points of view. Sometimes they're very explicit, these biases, and sometimes they're very implicitly embedded into the context of the map. So we shouldn't think of maps as objective objects, much as we might want to when we're using Google Maps on our phone or something like that. But we need to see them as very subjective objects that are really telling fascinating but partial stories. And we therefore should be reading them alongside other historical sources to piece together as complete a story as possible. So they're really interesting parts of a puzzle, but we need to see the rest of the puzzle to really understand what's happening in the past. A-level geographers are going to love this. It's very, <laughs> very important. Um, so shall we um, make a start then? How many and what sort of maps of Ukraine um, do we have in the RGS collection? Sure. So since 1830, when we were founded, we've had many maps of Ukraine enter the collections. This is via private donation, um, institutional deposit from things like Ordnance Survey and other government agencies from other countries, or by accession by the librarians. So today we have uh, hundreds of individual maps that date from roughly the 18th century to the 21st century, and they cover over a thousand individual sheets of maps. So quite a few that we had to choose from here. So many of our maps are clustered around historical events, including World War I and World War II, both of which were very important for Ukraine. And for this country specifically, we have a huge collection of maps from the Crimean War in the mid-19th century. So during that conflict, both the Foreign Office and the War Office asked to borrow maps from the society, and many entered the collection at that time, which covered Crimea and what is now southern Ukraine. So we end up with a real cache of these documents. So here, that's our kind of our first set. We have a bunch. So at the outset of the war, the British and their allies were really scrambling for geographic information about the area that they were to fight in. So one of the sources that was really valued, and we have several examples of this map in the collection, is this 1816 map of Crimea that was uh, created by the Russian army quartermaster, Major General Semyon Alexandrovich Mukin. So it was initially published in Russian in 1817, and we have an example of that Russian language version of the map. Um, but what I've done here is actually pull out a version that has the original Russian, and then below it, it has English. So it's an interesting kind of hybrid document that was republished in 1856. Uh, 
So Mukin was a surveyor and a cartographer who conducted the surveys for this map in the 1790s. He seems to have had a bit of trouble in his career because he's going to be demoted from quartermaster general to the assistant to the chief of the cartography depot. But that's where he's able to finish and originally publish this map. This version with the English is going to be brought out in London by Thomas Best Jervis. He's a fellow of this society, the RGS, and is also a major in the Army Corps of Engineers. So he's going to republish several maps of Crimea when the war started, and he would also then go on to be the first director of the uh, topographical and the statistical department of the War Office. So I think he's a really good example of RGS fellows that are really intimately connected into government in many ways. The war also is going to be inspiring the reprinting of a bunch of maps, but also then the creation of other maps. So we have a series of quite small maps here. They're all less than two feet in width and one foot in height, so pretty little. They'd fit in your pocket. And they show various things. So the one on top here is actually showing the British positions um, as they were above Sevastopol. Um, so this is during the siege of Sevastopol in the Crimean War, where we get things like the Charge of the Light Brigade and a lot of those more famous kind of moments uh, that we are all know about. So this is showing where the British were in red. And then we also have a naval brigade shown here in blue with the Russian artillery kind of arrayed in front. This is from 1854. So these are the initial locations. And then if we go under that, we have another one that is a plan of Sebastopol itself, which of course was a very important Russian naval base. And this would have been providing viewers back in Britain with the latest information known about a space that now a lot of British soldiers and cavalrymen are actually fighting in. So this one, second one was published by John Aerosmith, who's a very prominent fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and who published many of the maps for us. He publishes some of our journal maps and he gets very interested in the Crimean War and publishes a bunch of maps to keep the British public apprised of what was happening in the war. And then this third map here is from the end of the war. It's published in Paris in 1856, and it's a souvenir historique or a historical souvenir. So as the war was winding down, it shows the entirety of the Crimean Peninsula, and it also lists the dates of various battles and skirmishes. So here we see that the war has become collectible to the West, to the French and the British and it also, the war serves as a really important lesson in wartime reporting, winter troop maintenance, and nursing. So that's kind of how we know of the Crimean War here in the West. But for the people of Ukraine, we also need to remember that it was absolutely devastating for the people that lived there, and particularly for their economy. It's really crippling for the region and takes decades to recover. It's amazing that um, towns and cities like Sevastopol still remain so important militarily. Exactly. Geographically strategic locations kind of are perennially of interest and perennially of interest to governments. And so we see Sebastopol is also coming up in the current conflict. It also comes up in both World War One and World War Two. So it's definitely one of those areas that is going to be talked about and talked about over time. Mm -hmm. So we're moving on to our next map now. So this is map number five. Did Crimea continue to interest the society even after the end of the war? Yes, indeed. So this is actually an earlier map than what we were just talking about, but it only entered the collections in 1936. So in kind of the ramp up to World War II. Um, this is actually a map from 1787 showing the Crimean Peninsula. It is a relief map, which means that it's showing elevation. Here it's doing that by hashers, uh, which are slanting lines that indicate steepness. Um, and here they've gone a bit crazy with the hashers, so it looks quite quite hilly here in the Crimean, <laughs> especially here in the south where we do actually have some mountains and things. Um, but this area is actually quite flat, but though looks hilly here. 
Um, so this map was made by Jean-Hendrik von Kinsbergen, who is a Dutchman who served the Russians in its wars against the Ottomans in the 18th century. It's very typical for the Russian Navy at this time to employ particularly officers that were from uh, different parts of Europe, including actually a lot of British officers. So von uh, Kinsbergen commanded a squadron in the Black Sea, which is how he got experience of Crimea and was able then to put together the materials for this map. And the reason that this map is dated the when it is and why Crimea was of interest to Russia at this time, this map is actually done in French, so why it was interest to all of Europe, is because the Russians under Catherine the Great annexed Crimea in 1783, and then in 1787, Catherine herself is going to visit the peninsula. So in some ways, this, this map is kind of a memorial to the Russian takeover of this space in the 18th century. And I can see here it says Partie de la Mer Noire, which I guess is... The Black Sea, part of the yeah, Black part sea. of the Black Sea, yeah, yeah. So this would have been where von Kinsbergen was sailing his fleet. So interesting. What is the imagery included in in the left hand corner? Because we've got illustrations in this as well as. A map. Yes, indeed. So we have the geographic information and then we have this very large, what's called a cartouche. So a cartouche is typically the part of the map that includes the title and the publication information. Today, we're very used to cartouches being very simple, being unadorned. They're just kind of a square or they might just be the text itself. But until the early 19th century, many, many maps included very elaborate cartouches that included imagery that had a lot of symbolism to it. So this one here is showing a Russian nobleman on a horse. He is surrounded by very very thankful people, most of them wearing furs. So again, let us know that they are definitely Eastern European in some way. And so these are presumably the people of Crimea who are now facing this very big sun that's rising. So they're facing a bright new dawn that is coming from the east, so in the direction of Russia. This sort of vignette is meant to communicate the benefits of Russian rule and to gloss over any lingering conflict or dissent in the region that there might have been. So there's really a political statement happening here in addition to the geographic information that von Kinsbergen is giving us. Moving outward in scope... On to map number six. Uh, we have more recent maps of the country of Ukraine that show its changing status in the 21st century. First, it was part of the Russian Empire, partitioned between Poland and Bolshevik Russia. Then it was an independent country post-1991. Uh, uh, Ukraine has obviously changed form several times. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to say? Oh, very much so. And, and maps are really helpful for tracing that because they're kind of snapshots a lot of times, in this case, of political boundaries at one time. Um, so this is a very, very colorful map of Ukraine that's dated 1925. So this is after the very brief reign of the Ukrainian People's Republic that happened from 1917 to about 1921. And then this is after it's being integrated into the nascent USSR. Um, so this is as a Soviet Socialist Republic. This is an administrative map and it shows the oblasts or the provinces, each of which are done in various colors. So if you ever did, drew a map in primary school, you probably had this exercise given to you where you're given five colors and you have to make sure that they never touch. Yes. Um, so this is, is one of those very bright maps for that reason. Um, we had to do them of Africa when I was in, I think, secondary school, and I think I redid it six or seven times to make sure you get the colors right. So it's harder than it looks. So this was published in Kharkiv by the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, so it is a government document, and it's printed in the Cyrillic alphabet, so it's meant for um, the people of Eastern Europe, specifically in this case of the Soviet Socialist Republics and of Ukraine. So these political units are clearly the main focus of this map, and the legend outlines symbols for various cities of various sizes, 
as well as various types of boundaries that are separating the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic from its neighbors, because there was still in the 1920s a lot of uncertainty as to the status of things like Moldova, and which is then next to Romania, um, and also specifically parts of Romania like Wallachia. And so there's kind of this map looks like it's showing you a situation as it is, but that situation was actually quite in flux when this map was made. Right. Are there a lot of maps from the Soviet period between 1922 and 1991? There are. So the Soviets are particularly known for their mapping. Um, this includes maps that are secretive or clandestine, and then those also that are less known that are actually those distributed that far and wide as propaganda and as political tools. And we'll see some examples of those in just a second. So this one here, which is again very, very colorful, um, this is a sheet from a much bigger map. I've pulled the Crimea sheet just to keep in theme um, with our earlier maps that we talked about. So this is from 1947, so just after World War II ends. It's made by the GUGK, which is the Directorate General of Geodesy and Cartography. So it's the official mapping body of the USSR. Um, so this map is designed to emphasize the region's physical features, but it also, it's cities according to their size and um, the various roads that are connecting them. It also emphasizes the various types of minerals that are distributed throughout Ukraine, which is very, very rich in resources and is excellent land for agriculture. So I've chosen, again, the sheet of Crimea, and here in the east of Crimea, we see that there are very rich iron deposits. Um, that are happening. And then we see there's this rich green color spread throughout southern Ukraine uh, that is, again, emphasizing the rich agricultural lands that are, of course, going to then um, be the place where we have uh, intense famines moving on from uh, actually that had just happened uh, earlier in the 30s and that will continue to happen into the mid 20th century. And we've got uh, a very large map, map number eight coming up now. What about mapping people and populations, Katie? Sure. So this idea of ethnographic mapping um, was popular actually throughout the world in the mid-20th century, but particularly in the USSR, which had a very diverse population. So this is a very map showing Galicia, which is in southwestern Ukraine today. Um, but historically, Galicia has actually been passed around quite a bit. It was part of the Poland-Lithuania um, state or republic or whatever that entity was over time. It changed quite a bit. Uh, it was passed around a lot in between kind of Eastern and Western Europe, which is what we would say today. Um, so this is dated 1953. It's an ethnographic map that's showing um, the ethnographic groups, the languages that are spoken, and prevalent religious practices in this one region. So all across this region, we see these little pie charts um, that are showing the local makeup of the population. Uh, and these include Ukrainians in bright red, and that's by far the majority because we see most of these pie charts are majority red. Uh, then, but then there's also other colors, including ones for Polish peoples who arrived between 1920 and 1938, for a group called Latiniki, which are Ukrainian-speaking Roman Catholics in Polish-ruled Western Ukraine, and then another color for Jews and another color for Germans slash other, so kind of grouping together any other ethnic background um, into one category. So obviously there is lots to be learned from a map like this. Um, but we also need to remember that there's a political perspective that's being inscribed um, here with this ink. So, for example, each of these ethnic groups are classified by religion and language, but also by their national consciousness in the table in the upper right. So this is a way of categorizing those who are loyal to Ukrainian and Soviet priorities and those who lean more towards Polish and Western political stances. And the reason that this was so important is that this publication was sponsored by the Association of Ukrainian Former Combatants in Great Britain, 
And this is an organization that was founded in London in 1949 to promote the fraternity of ex-servicemen, but also to promote a free Ukraine. So most of the initial members were former soldiers from Galicia, which is this area. And today the organization has actually been subsumed within the larger Ukrainian diaspora in the UK. And there's actually a particularly large group of Ukrainian um, descendant peoples around Manchester. So in some ways we need objects like this to remind us of these groups that did have political stances and perspectives, but today maybe are less visible than they once were. And this is just a really interesting document printed both in Cyrillic and Latin script, so clearly meant for a diverse audience of people, both within Eastern Europe, but then also back home here in Britain. We've talked about um, former soldiers from Galicia, and we started with the Crimean War in 1854. Um, Are all maps of this period, so over the last two, three hundred years, drawn by former soldiers? Are they all to do with the military um, or population-based? Sure, it can seem that way, but they definitely weren't, even within the USSR. So Crimea has actually been promoted as a very fun place to visit. Um, So this map that we have here is from 1964. It is also published by the GUJK. But it's actually a tourist map. So this is from 1964. As I said, it shows the peninsula. And it was meant to encourage USSR visitors, so people from all over um, what is now kind of the former Soviet states, to visit this place. It's shown as a really green and inviting. It has wheat fields emphasized everywhere and lots of sunny little villages. And at the bottom, it lists sites of interest that are including uh, ancient ruins, more recent monuments, waterfalls, and beaches. So there's a wealth of really interesting research being conducted by historians about tourism in the former Soviet Socialist Republics. And so this is one fascinating artifact that I could see a historian really sinking their teeth into to understand how Crimea specifically was promoted to visitors from Russia and from farther afield within the wider USSR. And we're approaching our our 10th map now and running out of display space on on the table. Um, What can be understood from these maps about the significance of independence in 1991? Sure. I think coming from the West, a lot of us understand that that was a monumental global event. But we often don't hear about necessarily other perspectives that were also processing this really radical geographic shift, but also political shift and social shift. Um, So this is a map titled The Roadmap of New Independent Countries of Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, and Lithuania. And it was actually published in Tehran in 1994. So the focus on these countries suggests that there's a new understanding of the region that is more open um, beyond the former USSR. So the previous tourist map we uh, looked at is in the Cyrillic alphabet, so it's meant for readers of Russian or Eastern European languages. Um, So clearly was meant about talking about mobility within the USSR, but not necessarily across what we call the Iron Curtain. Here we see a real interest in this area that perhaps maybe was more closed before, coming from um, specifically Iran in this case, but from uh, not necessarily just Western Europe. So it includes flags of these newly independent nations, and it's done in a lot of really kind of bright, inviting colors. The map is published in both Farsi and in English by the Gita Shinasi Geographic and Cartographic Organization, which is a commercial venture that sells maps um, to children for educational purposes, but also kind of decorative maps. And it includes a lot of information that would be necessary for a road trip across these spaces. And so it includes historical monuments, main and secondary roads, regional capitals, and the various types of boundaries that now divide the area. 
However, a note reminds us um, that this is still a time of negotiation and transition. So here, just near the legend, we have, um, it's in Farsi, and then in English, it says, international boundaries are not authoritative. So there seems to be an understanding here that while this entire region is of interest and is perhaps more open, it is still in flux. And precisely what is going to be included in a space like Ukraine is something that's still being discussed heavily in the mid-1990s. And am I right in thinking they've removed the Black Sea? So they've got the countries of Eastern Europe here and then they've cut straight across to the Caucasus. Yes, I think that's a space issue here. So um, the Caucasus is the main part of the map in the back. And then we have what's called an inset. So we have um, a smaller map set into the lower left corner, which is where we get the Ukraine and just the northern part of the Black Sea. So to fit it all on one sheet that would still be accessible, particularly if one were to take this on a road trip, they needed to decide that this map was going to have a map within a map, which is very, very common, particularly in road maps. That's why you always get the city inset uh, and then you have kind of the larger region beyond it. It's been such a fascinating 20 minutes. Thank you, Katie, for this uh, journey through time on Ukrainian maps. No problem. Thanks for highlighting our collections. We really like to share them and we love to have readers come down and use our collections in their own work. Yes, please do come and visit us in the foil reading room. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.